Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. So folks, I ask you, did Paul have a rough job spreading the Galleon across the entire Roman Empire? Yes, Paul had a few challenges and he didn't have Zoom. He didn't have Zoom, but we do. One more important fact for understanding Paul's letter to the Romans, this is really, really important, so really listen hard. The Edict of Emperor Claudius. Historical evidence shows that Jewish migrants had settled in Rome, Italy as early as the second century before Jesus Christ. But by the middle of the first century AD, there could have been as many as 50,000 Jews in Rome. The Edict of Emperor Claudius is important. There was an expulsion of the Jews by Roman Emperor Claudius. He was in office from 41 to 54. This appears in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. So you have these Caesars, Julius, then Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius. At the time of Claudius, it's in Acts 18, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. It's the expulsion, the Edict of Claudius. They are kicked out. Jewish Christians are kicked out of Rome under this emperor. It's in Acts 18. It's in the writings of the Roman historian Suetonius. It's in the writings of Cassius Deo. It's in the writings of a Roman priest named Paulus Orsius. He was a student and a historian, a student of Augustine of Hippo. There were at least two expulsions of Jews from Rome before this edict. In 139 BC, Jews were expelled because they were Judaizing among the local Gentiles. Again, in 13 AD, under Caesar Tiberius, once again, Jews were expelled expelled from Rome for similar reasons, aggressive Judaizing, trying to proselytize, trying to convert too hard. Suetonius wrote a brief statement. It's called Divus Claudius 25. He mentions agitations caused by the Jews, which Claudius decided to expel all Jews from Rome, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christos, Jesus Christ. He, the Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. It's called the Emperor of Claudius's Edict, and it's very, very important to wrap your mind around this. He dies in 54 AD. Think about this. With the Jewish Christians expelled out of Rome, only the Roman Christians are left behind to keep the church growing there. And in the absence of these Jewish Christians, the Roman Christians become the central church leadership in Rome. Some of the ancient Romans who converted don't know the Hebrew scriptures, of which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Some of the Romans still practice their own feast days, their celebrations, their customs. They have their own pantheon of little G gods that they had adopted from the Greeks. Remember all those Greek gods had received Roman names? They had, oh, they had the baths. They had the aqueducts that brought in water into Rome. This was really big at this time in Roman history. Public bathing had come into vogue. Rome was famous for its public baths. They first developed around the second century before Christ. And in 25 BC, Agrippa, a chief deputy under Augustus, designed and built the first therma, a large extensive bath system. And the Roman emperors that followed kept increasingly making them larger and larger and more and more. And the motto became the 
cleanliness is next to godliness. So the Baths of Diocletian, the Baths of Caracalla, there was a 27-acre complex. It took 9,000 laborers five years to complete, and they exemplified the Romans' devotion to public bathing. There were grounds and sports fields and Olympic-sized swimming pools, gardens, fountains, a four-story bathhouse, accommodating 1,600 people at one time. We see mosaics of athletes in the Vatican museums. These come from the Roman baths. We see floor plans and, and what it must have been like. We can read that the interior walls were adorned with mosaics and gilded carvings and hundreds of alcoves for statuary. There was a hypocaust, it literally means a fire underneath to warm the tiled floors, to heat the tub waters. 50 furnaces burned 10 tons of wood daily to heat the baths. There were massage rooms and saunas and perfumeries and a hair salon. And on a typical day in ancient Rome, a tintabulum would ring like a bell to summon men and women to the afternoon baths. And mixed gender bathing was common initially. And later, single sex bathing became vogue as well. Now, entry fees to the baths were very low or free, so the poor people could bathe too. The bathers could soak in a warm tepidarium or a hot caladarium, or they could be dipped into a freezing frigidarium, and there would be jugglers and acrobats and musicians and poets and vendors selling wine and pretzels and cake and eels and quail eggs. And you could even hire a depilator to pluck unwanted hair or to oil, sand, and scrape your skin. We still find the tools, the bronze strigals used, a tool for scraping the body, scraping the dirt, the perspiration, the oil that was applied in the ancient Roman baths. Why am I telling you this? Listen to what Seneca, he's a first century Rome, Italy, Stoic philosopher. Listen what he said about the Roman baths and bathhouses. All this bustle created a cacophony. It could make you hate your own ears. Musclemen pumping weights, emitting squeaking, squealing sounds. Masseuses slapped flesh. Pickpockets were noisily arrested. And bathers yelped from having hair yanked from their armpits. Sausage sellers and pastry bakers and barmen cried their wares. And there was always a man who liked to hear himself singing in the bath. Aside from giving him headaches, Seneca believed that communal bathing inspired sexual licentiousness and moral delinquency. Sexual licentiousness and moral delinquency in the first century when these Roman bathhouses were created. They were designed for voluptuous delights of the flesh. In Roman mythology, Voluptus was the daughter born of the union of Cupid and Psyche, and she was found in the company of the three graces, the Grazia, and she is known as the goddess of sensual pleasure and sensual delight. There was also the Epicureans. Uh, after the Greek philosopher, there were Roman followers of Epicurus, and that main theme of that argued that pleasure was the chief good in life. And so erotic frescoes depicting people having sensual pleasure in graphic detail, an epigram to the entrance of the bath of Carcalla in Rome this day. We can still read baths, wine, and sex spoil our bodies, but baths, wine, and sex make up life. Brothels were common, explicit pictures of services offered, usually located near the Roman bathhouses. So just think in your mind what Rome was like, and then compare and contrast. You have Jews coming in. So you have two cultures extremely different, Jews and Romans. The Jews have a very strict moral code, the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. They have 613 mitzvah laws, which were more and more Jewish rules, fences around the law. Leviticus 18 alone had a very strict sexual code of conduct. The Romans had no strict 
moral code. Maybe one reason that Paul begins this letter to the Romans by addressing the homosexual act that were so thriving in the bathhouses. Paul was writing from a Romanized city, Corinth, that was like a Las Vegas today. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. But while in Rome, do as the Romans do. Cleanliness was not next to big G godliness at the Roman bathhouses. And many of those early Christians rejected the idea of public bathing. And some Christians practice alusia, the state of being unwashed. We read that St. Agnes, virgin martyr, never ever bathed. So Paul says in his final instructions, I appeal to your brethren to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience, this is a main theme, your obedience is known to all. I rejoice over you. I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So picture this. The Jews had left Rome under Emperor Claudius. Now they are allowed to come back under the next Roman emperor. Claudius dies and the next emperor is Nero. Nero. There's a pastoral tension in the Christian Roman church, those Italian Christians from Rome and those Jewish Christians from Jerusalem returning back to Rome after the edict of Claudius. Two extremely, couldn't be more different cultures who had been physically separated by the edict of Emperor Claudius. And now Paul is writing a pastoral letter to the Romans. It's such a priceless treasure. It's the crown jewel of Paul's theology to a Gentile Roman Greek world. Paul was helping the Italian Roman Christians and the Jewish Roman Christians to reconcile their differences and to understand the euangelion from the eternal King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Emperor Jesus. Jesus Christ. How did that Christian faith get to Rome? You'll remember an event called Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where we're told that visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, were there present. A proselyte is one born of non-Israelite, Greek or Roman lineage, who joins the Jewish religion by circumcision and obedience to other requirements of the Mosaic law. And such proselytes to Judaism were the first non-Jewish converts to the church. How did Peter get there? Peter had that miraculous prison escape after James was beheaded in Acts chapter 12. There's a tradition that that apostle Peter came to Rome then, fleeing the tension that was created in Jerusalem near the beginning of the reign of Claudius. Eusebius, in his ecclesial history, specifies that St. Peter arrived in Rome in the second year of Claudius's reign, would have been right at 42 AD. So Paul gives us this beautiful salutation to start the letter. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Okay, God has promised this through his prophets, through the Holy Scripture, the Old Testament. That's all Paul had. That's all Paul knew. This gospel is concerning his son, his son who had descended from David in the flesh, but is designated the son of God. Paul already understands the theology of a dual nature, God and man in one. Jesus had that dual nature. He descended from David according to the flesh. He's a designated son of God in the power according to the Holy Spirit of holiness. That's the Trinity. Paul gets Trinity already through him who we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith, a main theme again in Paul's letter, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among who? All the nations, just the Jews? No, all the nations, all Abram's children, all the stars, 
all the sand, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are all called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. That's his salutation, classic and beautiful. He goes on. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed where? In all the world. The entire world is talking about the Romans and their faith, the Roman Christians. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul is continually praying for the church in Rome, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul really desires to go there. He'd really like to visit this church. Paul didn't found this church, but he's hoping to visit. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged. Paul needs their strengthening too. It's a mutual encouragement. It's a mutual affirmation that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I want you to know, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul is always zealous for souls. He's always wanting to reap a harvest. The harvest he wants to reap is souls. He wants to tell people the euangelion. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, are you ever ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel's hard. Maybe you don't want to talk to your kids about the gospel. Maybe you don't want to talk about the gospel at the table. Maybe it makes you nervous. Maybe it makes you scared. Jesus says it's not going to be an easy gospel. I haven't come to give peace on the earth. No, I tell you, rather division. For henceforth, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The gospel's hard. The gospel's not easy. Are you ever ashamed of the gospel? Do you not want to proclaim it? Do you not want to speak it? Do you not want to tell it? Because it's meant to be heard. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, said Paul. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Paul is quoting there, he'll do it a few times in some of his letters from Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This prophet Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. He lived in the 7th century BC at a time when the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians and before the Jews lost that temple. And in his book, Habakkuk paints a picture of social injustice as a result of religious decadence and moral depravity. He gives cause to the suffering of the people and attempts to rally them. And he expresses his complaint to God that those who love God and are righteous are suffering hardships and they're oppressed by those who show no reverence for God. And Habakkuk further complains that God doesn't intervene. He doesn't intervene directly to force the powerful to abandon their violence against those who are weaker. The law, the religious, the moral teaching, which is the basis of a righteous society has become paralyzed because of overwhelming violence. Does this sound familiar in our culture today? 
God's answer to the prophet is the phrase, but the just, the righteous shall live by my faith. This is the whole central idea of Habakkuk's prophecy, that the righteous will live because of their trust in God. Trusting God when you don't understand him. Trusting God when you can't see him. And like Habakkuk, Paul's convinced that wickedness and sin are incompatible with God's holiness and that the situation can only be resolved through God's intervention. So Paul uses this pronunciation, this pronouncement against Habakkuk. Uh, I'm sorry, Paul is going to use this quote from Habakkuk in his letter to the Romans, the Galatians, it's in the Hebrews. And, and Paul's talking about faith in Christ as God's son, as God's word, as the one who recapitulates in his person all the father's revelations. And so in Paul's salutation to the Romans, Paul's going to ask them, what do you want first? Do you want the good news or the bad news? Because I got both. Have your kids ever done this to you? Mom, do you want the good news or the bad news? And you say, oh, let's do the bad news. Get that out of the way. I'm bracing myself. And then you can tell me the good news. You don't understand how good the good news is if you don't know how bad the bad news is. So Paul is going to deliver the bad news first. And Paul has street cred in the bad news department because he lived a life of bad news. He had a deep understanding of fallen human nature because he lived so long in spiritual darkness. And that's like us, like we can't see. We have spiritual blindness of our own and we can't see the light. We all need a light. We need a savior, someone who can help us see, someone who is the light of the world. We're all guilty of suppressing the gospel, suppressing the light of Christ, suppressing the light of truth. And this is what Paul talks about in his next section. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Fallen humans are really good at this. We're really great at suppressing the truth. So I looked up what it means to suppress, and I'll put the truth on the end of these. To suppress, it's a verb. To forcibly put an end to the truth. To prevent the development, action, or expression of the truth. To restrain the truth. To prevent the dissemination of the truth. To partly or wholly eliminate the truth. Or to consciously inhibit or avoid considering the truth. That's what it means to suppress. I don't want to hear it. Does American culture today suppress the truth? Because the Romans did. Truth has a name. We're seeking truth. And Jesus said, I'm the truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And we know from Hebrews, the truth is unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. When you know Jesus, you will be free. But fallen humans are really good about suppressing the truth. We got this. We're fine. We don't need to hear. And we think we don't need a savior. And we think we can do it all on our own. For this is what can be known about God is plain to them, to fallen humans, Paul says, because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world, his invisible name nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things he has made. So they, the fallen humans, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. This is nothing new. We had this in Genesis. Adam and Eve, it's the seventh day rest face to face. They're with God, the creator himself in the garden. They want to know created things more than they want to know the creator. They want to know the fruit from the other tree, the tree of knowledge. They want to know the created. They want to experience the created. They have the life force, the tree of life. They can eat from freely at any time. And they want the other created tree instead of life itself, whom through they were created. They 
they want the created thing instead of the one who spoke them into being. They chose mortality instead of the immortality they had. And now they're mortal and they're in mortal sin and they have to be protected from eating from life. They worship the creator instead, they worship the created, excuse me, instead of the creator. And that's classic what we call idolatry. It's the first commandment. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. When we had life before the fall, we had preternatural gifts, impassibility, freedom from pain, immortality. We had freedom from death, integrity. We had freedom from concupiscence or disordered desires. And we had infused knowledge, freedom from ignorance in matters essential for happiness, our own beatitude. Let's take just two of those. Integrity, freedom from concupiscence or disordered desires and infused knowledge, freedom from ignorance in matters essential for happiness. We had them. Now we don't. Now we have concupiscence. We have disordered desires. Now we're ignorant. Our minds are tarnished. Our thinking's futile. We're ignorant in matters of essentialness for our own beatitude. We are fallen from God's grace. We became futile in our thinking and our senseless minds became darkened. But the new Adam, Jesus Christ, has come back. He has come back to get us back to the Father, to give us back what the thief stole when he tempted Eve and spoke in her ear. He's come and established the kingdom of God on earth. He's that final rock, not hewn of human hands that has crushed all other worldly kingdoms and is an eternal kingdom in heaven, but it starts here on earth. It's the church. And through the church, Christ acts through sacrament, seven, a perfection of sacraments. But during the coronavirus, we couldn't have the sacraments. We couldn't have Eucharist. We watched Eucharist on TV. We watched Eucharist on our iPad. We couldn't have communion with the living God, but we still had our Bibles. We still had Jesus, the word, the unchanging word of truth. But the coronavirus put us into a spiritual vertigo. Our idols were being stripped away one after the next. Many of our idols were confirmed as empty. They didn't matter. They were meaningless. Everything we clung to so dearly was being stripped from us. No dinners out. All the restaurants are closed. No more shopping. All the stores are closed. No more travel. Airports are grounded. No more employment. Some people lost their jobs. Businesses were closing. No more school. Kids can't go to school. Schools are closed. No more movies. Movies are closed. No more Broadway. Broadway's closed. No more College World Series. What? In Omaha, Nebraska. No more Husker football. What? No more visiting nursing home loved ones. You can see your mom on an iPad. I was lucky enough to see my mom this summer for a few seconds, two seconds. I slipped off my mask and took a picture. The next day they closed it down again because someone in her memory care unit got COVID. No more family members can accompany the ill to the hospital. No more ventilators. No more family members can accompany the dying. All our idols stripped. No more large wakes to pray for the deceased. No more funerals with more than 10 people present. All our idols being stripped away, stripped away, stripped away. A lot of the created things were taken away, but God was not taken away. In our darkest moments, God was there. God is there because he's a living God. Church was taken away. Services were canceled. Doors of churches closed. No more church. But God was there. Even when all our idols were stripped away and we were longing for communion with one another, a lot of families had increased communion of the family. Things were canceled. We had a lot of urges and desire to be back in community. We wanted to be back with our church family. But what we really wanted was communion with Jesus. And we wanted the communion of saints. 
in that perfect communion with the Trinity, with love itself. We want seventh day rest. That's what we long for. But we stayed in communion with God's word because we had those Bibles in our homes. Integrity, freedom from concupiscence or disordered desires. We had it before the fall, after the fall. We don't have it anymore. The right order in our life is God first. And when we don't put God first, we have disorder in a multitude of ways. Therefore, God gave them up to lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, consumed with passion. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own person the due penalty for their error. Rome knew what was going on in the Roman public bathhouses was wrong. It went against nature, but they suppressed the truth and we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth for lies and God allows it. God allows it. Why? Because God has given us freedom. And when we choose that God is not first, he allows it. God wrote that natural law in our hearts. No one's without excuse. Even the design of our human bodies show us God's natural law, but God allows us to go after a dead end. God allows a non-life-giving dead end. He allows us to choose that even though he's come that we might have life and have it to the abundant. We choose created things over God, and God allows us the freedom to put ourselves in bondage. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God and gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct, they were filled with a manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Homosexuality is not the only condition addressed by Paul in this chapter. Listen to the list and see if you fit in anywhere. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, all those things. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. Ancient pagan Rome and modern United States of America look eerily similar. Paul begins his letter with the bad news, and the bad news is we are all guilty. We love created things more than we love our creator. But God is a God of right order. God is a God of design, and God can reorder any chaos. And his gospel is powerful. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. The argument has just begun. Paul doesn't finish the argument of chapter one. So you got to come back next week because Paul's not done with this argument. It's continuing over into Romans two. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this apostle Paul and his zeal for souls and for the power of the Yuan Galing and the power of your good news that can convict hearts, expose our thoughts and bring us to you because you want us out of bondage. You want us in freedom. You want our lives right ordered. May we, Lord God, put away our idols with loving created things and focus on you, our creator, who are all good, all knowing, all loving. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. 
To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.